Thanks. All right. Uh, finally, I'm going to invite Greg to come up. And uh, for those uh, that have been around here for a little while, uh, this is sermon weekend number 1,000 for Greg Boyd. So, so this is our, uh, our chance to just say thanks. And we love you. We're honored to get to learn from you and uh, grateful for pleasure. the impact. So That just means you. I'm old. <laughs> well, 1,000. Goodness gracious. And one of these days, I'm going to preach a good one. Just hang on. It's coming. It, it, it's coming. Really. Well, good morning. Well, then, Nils, and to our pod listeners, you know, we've got like 20,000 pod listeners each week. So our pod listeners, where are the cameras? Good morning to you, or good afternoon, or good evening, or good middle of the night. Whenever you're listening, I hope things are going well. And if they're not, I hope the sermon helps it go better. I'm Greg, teaching pastor here, as you just said. And uh, we've been in this series, uh, Without Borders, talking about the kingdom of God and all of its uniqueness and how it contrasts with the kingdom of the world. And how we're called, all Jesus followers are called to be ambassadors of that kingdom. And so today we're going to close this series by talking about the final distinctive about the kingdom of God. And that is that we've got one weapon. We're in a war of sorts. And there's only one weapon that we have that we're supposed to be using. Now I'm told that you could trace the development of human technology by looking at the development of our weaponry. In fact, a lot of historians argue that the primary impetus, the primary motivation for developing new technology throughout history has always been uh, to get superior weapons. Uh, it's kind of sad, but that's been the driver. We need to have weapons that are better than those of our foes. So you go back to the Stone Age and the weapons were just objects, you know, a rock or a club. But in time we got a little more sophisticated and we developed swords and spears and javelins that you could throw at a distance, kill your opponent at a distance. And then we developed bows and arrows. You could shoot them from even farther away. And then catapults that could launch these giant objects at your enemy, even over the walls of their fortresses, and kill multitudes of them at one time. And then in time, we discovered from the Chinese gunpowder. And they were using it for fireworks, but, but we, Westerners were able to turn it into weapons. We developed guns. Initially, they were real primitive. Uh, even from 20 feet away, you had about a 50% chance of hitting the person. When I was a kid, I used to always watch these shows, you know, where the, with the Revolutionary War or whatever, when the British and the Americans would come, and they just would stay, it seems like a really dumb way to fight, but they'd just stand in a row and, and shoot at each other, and, and only half of the people would fall. And I thought, when I was younger, like, man, they're really bad shots back then. But it was because the guns were so inaccurate. They just weren't, weren't very accurate. And then it took about five minutes to reload the thing. But in time, we got much more sophisticated. Their guns got much more accurate. You didn't have to reload them. You could just fire in session. We developed machine guns. We could mow down entire rows of people at one time. We were just brilliant in developing this weaponry. And then we had cannons, and then cannons that you could carry on your shoulders called bazookas and kill massive amounts of people with a single shot. And then we developed bombs and, 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 and planes and then fighter jets and then stealth bombers where they couldn't even see them coming. And... They, and, and boats, warrior carriers, whatever they're called. We could launch off planes from there. And then finally, nuclear bombs and chemical weapons, and then finally drones, where you could kill masses of amounts of people and not ever be in harm's way because you're on the other side of the planet controlling the thing. It's just brilliant in a demonic kind of way, if you think about it. Uh, it's a testament to, I think, the fall and to original sin that human beings can be so brilliant, but that brilliance goes in large part to making weapons that kill other people. But those aren't the only kind of weapons we use. Uh, in everyday life, we have our own weapons, like words. Words can slice people apart. You don't physically harm people with words, but you can kill their hearts, kill their spirit, 
assassinate their character. Gestures can be weapons. Expressions can be weapons. That look that can kill. No one got killed. Okay. But an expression can be a weapon. In fact, virtually anything can become a weapon. The Bible can become a weapon, a real powerful weapon. And see, all these weapons, things when they're used as weapons, um, they're designed to kill and to harm people because the assumption is that people are the enemy. Now, as I said earlier in the series, for people who are followers of Jesus, who are in the kingdom, human beings are never the enemy. We're not allowed to have flesh and blood enemies. Here's what Paul says. I've read this several times before. It's a powerful passage. Ephesians 6. He says, our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh. It's never about enemies of blood and flesh. But against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. That's how Paul describes this age. Present darkness. So if things seem kind of dark right now, well, that's because... They're under the rule of these cosmic powers. And against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These are rebel powers, angelic beings that oppress the world. And so our battle is never against flesh and blood. It's a much more profound battle. Because our battle is against the principalities and powers that are behind all flesh and blood conflict. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's rather against the powers that are always deceiving human beings into thinking that other human beings are the enemy. Because we're fighting, if we're shooting at each other, we're not shooting at them. In fact, if we're shooting at each other, we're being played by them. Whenever you see flesh and blood conflict going on, on any level, whether it's interpersonal conflict or international conflict, you're seeing there people who are not resisting the powers, they're rather being played by the powers. We're either resisting the powers or we're being played. And kingdom people are to always remember that our job is to fight the principalities and powers. So, so it's not the individual person who hates that is our enemy. In fact, if, if we hate the person who hates, we're just con- making more hatred in the world. Rather, our battle is not, not against the individual who hates, but against the principalities and powers who are behind all hatred. And, and our battle is not against the individual racist. Uh, they're not our enemy. They're flesh and blood. Our battle, rather, is against the principalities and powers that are behind all racism. And so it is for all manner of sin in the world. Our battle is with the powers. And so, because our battle is not against flesh and blood, we don't use flesh and blood weapons that are designed to hurt flesh and blood. We've got our own type of weapon. Like the weapon that we've got is a sort of a secret weapon. Uh, it's a secret weapon because it's, it's a kind of weapon that the world, the way the world thinks, would never identify as a weapon. And the weapon that we're to use isn't designed to harm or kill flesh and blood humans. Uh, it's rather designed to heal and to transform and to set free flesh and blood humans. And while the one weapon that we're to use, it looks weak and foolish to the world, it is in fact the most powerful force in the universe. It's more powerful than clubs and spears and, and javelins and, and catapults and tanks and fighter jets and nuclear bombs. It's the strongest force in the world. In fact, Paul goes so far in 1 Corinthians 1 to say that this weapon that we have is nothing less than the power of God Almighty. Now, if you haven't guessed it yet, What I'm talking about is the cross. It's the power of the cross. The extravagant, self-sacrificial love that was revealed on Calvary, that is the one secret weapon that God uses and the weapon that we are to use. Um, It's it's the weapon that God uses to defeat the kingdom of darkness. When, when, When God declares war in the kingdom of darkness and comes to defeat the kingdom of darkness, he doesn't use flesh and blood weapons. He didn't drop a bunch of nukes on Satan's kingdom. In fact, 
that would be fighting evil with evil. It would just increase evil. It would empower Satan's kingdom. When God defeats the principalities and powers, he does it by putting his extravagant love on display on the cross. And see, the cross looks foolish and weak to the world, but it is, that self-sacrificial love, uh, is, 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 uh, it's like an explosion, an atomic explosion of light that vanquishes the darkness. That when Jesus offers up his life on the cross, that is an atomic explosion of God's love and forgiveness that, that defeats, it vanquishes all the principalities and powers that are behind all hatred and unforgiveness. When Jesus dies on the cross, that is a, a nuclear explosion of God's grace that obliterates all debts and thereby disempowers Satan because it takes away from Satan everything that he ever had on us. God defeats the principalities and powers with the secret weapon of his self-sacrificial love, his extravagant self-sacrificial love. And since that's how God fights and that's who God fights, that's who we're to fight and this is how we're to fight by putting this extravagant love on display. Now that all, if you've been here for, around here for any length of time, is, is review. But this, you may not have noticed. And that is that it's the extravagance of God's love that defeats the powers of darkness. God doesn't do the minimum that's required. He, he goes to the maximum. And, and it's that maximal quality that defeats the principalities and powers. Uh, when God wants to redeem us, uh, he doesn't do it by just like sending down a rule book saying, here's, here's my will. He tried that with the law and it didn't work. So uh, that, 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 he doesn't settle for that. He doesn't just send a prophet or doesn't even send an angel. He himself comes down to us. His love is extravagant. It goes all the way. In Philippians 2, uh, Paul tells us that uh, Jesus didn't grasp after equality with God. He didn't cling to his advantages as being God. He rather was willing to set all those aside and become this finite human being, which is magnificent enough. I mean, that's magnificent love right there. But God goes much further when he enters into solidarity with our sin and into solidarity with our curse on the cross. The all-holy God becomes sin for us, and the perfectly united God of love becomes our God-forsaken curse. He takes upon himself our God-forsakenness that we deserve. God goes to the extreme of actually experiencing the antithesis of himself, the opposite of himself. And, and he could not have done anything more, could not have gone further than he went to redeem us. This is a God who goes all the way. And it's the infinite distance he crosses and the infinite sacrifice he's willing to make that reveals the infinite perfection of his love, his extravagant love. And that's what defeats the kingdom of darkness. That's what defeats Satan and, and, and his minions. All the powers that fuel all hatred and racism and every other sin, this is what defeats them. It's the extravagance of God's love. God didn't just uh, not give us what we deserve. That would have been gracious enough. And he didn't just do the minimum that was necessary to keep us from getting what we deserve. He went all the way. He went all the way. He went to the infinite extreme. He did the opposite of what we deserved, to the, to the infinite extreme. And it's the extravagance of that love that breaks the chains on our life and that defeats the principalities and powers. His love is extravagant. Now, to see how extravagant that love is, I want to turn to another passage here. This is Ephesians chapter 1. Oh, this is just an incredible verse. This message is brought to you by Le Croix Water. I love this stuff. It's kind of addictive. And no, I don't own stock in the company. Le Croix. All right. Here's what it says in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Everyone say every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. It wasn't one that he kept back. Every one of them was given to us in heavenly places. Just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, 
to be holy and blameless before him in love. We who have accepted Christ, he made a decision from the foundation of the world that all who accept Christ are going to be holy and blameless before him in love. And he destined us for adoption as his children through Christ. Anyone who's a believer is going to be adopted as, as, as a child. According to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Say glorious grace. Glorious. That he freely bestowed. Say freely bestowed. On us in the beloved, in Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished. Say lavished. Oh, no, that's a great word. I'll get back to it in a second. He lavished on us. This, this passage just is abounding in these superlatives. Here's the thing. So here's how God responds to our sin and our, our condition. He says, so you want to be my enemies? Want to be my enemies? Well, Fine. I'll respond by giving you every spiritual blessing I have. And you want to be imprisoned? You put yourself in prison and banished to Satan in hellish places? Fine, I'll respond by bringing you up and having you dwell with me in Christ in heavenly places. You make yourself sinful and unholy? Well, fine, I'll respond by making you holy and blameless in my sight. You want to be rebels? I'll respond. I'll judge you by making you my children. I'll adopt you as my children. And, and, and you, you want to freely reject me? Well, I'll respond by freely bestowing on you my love and my glorious grace. And you incurred an unpayable debt to Satan? Well, I'll respond to that by judging you because I'll, I'll, I'll offer up redemption through my own blood and erase all debt so you're not in bondage anymore. And you lavish hate and scorn on Christ and, and your violence on Christ, I'll respond by lavishing on you the, the glorious riches of my grace. God doesn't give us what we deserve. He gives us the exact opposite of what we deserve. And he does that to the extreme. He does it in an extravagant way. And it's that extravagance that, 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 that defeats the powers of darkness. And I love this word lavish. Pereskuo in Greek. It means to pour out in abundance. Uh, to be excessive in something. It's the opposite of just enough. Okay? It's, it, it's, it's overabundance, extreme. In response to our sin, God doesn't give us the minimal amount of grace that we need. We don't get a little breadcrumb of grace that falls from the master's table. Though that would have been gracious and magnificent in and of itself. But God doesn't do that. In response to our condition, when we deserved his harsh judgment the most, he opens up the treasure chest of his glorious grace and he empties the whole thing out on us. Here's my response to your condition. And he just overboards this. He, he empties the treasure chest on us. But you can't empty it because it goes on forever. So it just keeps on pouring and pouring and pouring. I've had for 40 some years now the grace is being poured on me. He's just lavishing it on me. It's overabundance. It's excessive. And, it, and it's endless. We, we become like little pebbles at the bottom of, of God's, the Niagara Falls of God's infinite grace. Your little pebble on there and he's just pouring it on you. And it's nonstop. It's excessive. It's absolutely extravagant. The cross reveals, I tweeted this this last week, but the cross reveals a God who is willing to do anything to give us absolutely everything when we deserve absolutely nothing. The cross reveals a God who is willing to do absolutely everything or anything to give us absolutely everything when we deserve absolutely nothing. And folks, that is extravagant love. In fact, extravagant isn't captured. It's, it's, it's extravagant. It's excessive. It's superabundant. It's overwhelming. It's unbelievable. It's uncontainable. It's incomprehensible. It's unfathomable. It, it, it's, it's, it, there's no words for it. It's, just, it's, it's overboard. It does the opposite of what we deserve. Uh, and it does it to the infinite extreme. And this is God's secret weapon for defeating evil. And so this is to be our secret weapon for de defeating evil. 
Paul says where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. I don't know about you, but I, had, I abounded in sin. I, you know, there's some of these folks who, they have to take it on faith that they need a Savior because you know, they're, they're just one of these well-bred people who are, their personality is kind of middle of the road and they're, they're kind of you know, they're, they're compliant and they get along. I wasn't quite that. Uh, I, I'm one of these well-bred you know, religious types. Uh, and some of you can relate to this. I, I, I abounded in sin. I, I, I racked up a good score. I, I, if God was keeping a record book, I, he would have an encyclopedia on me. But praise God, where the sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Grace did much more abound. God doesn't just break even on this thing, though that would have been a major achievement. Uh, he doesn't do the ma- minimum, he does the maximum. He doesn't just forgive. It's like, it, it, this isn't grammatically correct, but it's, it's like he, he doesn't just forgive, he over-forgives. He doesn't just give grace, he overgives grace. You know, he doesn't just save, he super saves you. He doesn't just redeem you, he uber redeems you. He goes overboard in the opposite direction. It's extravagant love. And see, this is how he defeats evil in our own life. When, when you get a glimpse of that extravagant love, that overwhelming love, it's not just a deal where he, he does the minimum and, and you get by. That'd be nice. But when you see the overboardness of God's love, the excessiveness of his love, the abounding nature of his love, uh, that's what, 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 what it, it compels you to follow him. He wins your heart with his extravagance. When, when I see his love, that extravagant love, it makes me want to live for him. And it makes me want to turn away from the things in my life that, that I know harm me and displease him. When you get a glimpse of that love, that extravagant love, uh, it, it changes who you are. It changes your identity. It changes your destiny. It changes your heart. It, 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 that love is what breaks the chains of bondage in our life, amen? That love is what sets the captives free. That love is what resurrects us spiritually dead people back to life. That love is what fills us with abundant life and can fill us with God's joy and can fill us with God's love and can fill us with God's peace and transforms us from the inside out. Hallelujah. Folks, you cannot out God's grace. You can no more out God's grace than, than a little pebble can stop Niagara Falls from falling. You can no more sin God's grace than you can outdoors warm up a blizzard, a Minnesota blizzard with a match. It's not going to happen. No, he just overwhelms that. He smothers, he's, it's like he smothers the sin out of us. Uh, he just drowns it with his love. Fine, you want to be that way? Well, here's what I'll do in response. He responds not by what we deserve, but by giving us the opposite of what we deserve. And that's what transforms us. And that's the one weapon that God uses to defeat the one foe which is the kingdom of darkness, and this is the one weapon that we're to use as we wage war against the principalities and powers. So when Paul says, and I've read this passage several times, Ephesians 5, he says, Be imitators of God, which means as beloved children, live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you. Now think about that. When, when he says live in love, this is the kind of love he's talking about. Because this is the kind of love that God loved us with in Jesus Christ when he laid down his life for us. We are to live in that. We're to imitate God and replicate. The, we're to respond to evil and to sin the way God responds to evil and sin in us. Now, Paul makes this explicit in Romans, among other places, in Romans 12. Listen to this. He says, Blessed, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Instead, go to the opposite extreme. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. This means you'll bring conviction on them. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So it's like this. 
And now you get a little sampling of my great artistic skills. Here's the thing. So someone's mean to you. Now this applies for, it applies to our interpersonal conflict. It applies to national conflict. It applies to every kind of conflict. But let's start with kind of our everyday conflict. Someone's mean to you. Okay, they, they strike at you. They gossip about you. you know, they give you an angry face. Right? This, this, this is the, the meanie. They're meanie towards you. Now there's an impulse in you that wants to be meanie back at them. Right? There's a party that says, oh, you did that. Well, watch this. You want to defend yourself. You know, you want to retaliate. Uh, so you, you want to go like this. Okay, fine. I'll, uh, uh, you want to be mean to me? I'll be mean to you. <sighs> gossip about me? I'll gossip about you. Say nasty stuff about my kids. Well, I'm going to slaughter your kids. It uh, goes around and around. And see, when we do that, when we do that, now we're being overcome by evil. Now the, the nastiness that's directed at us gets internalized. We absorb it. It defines us. And we just mirror what they're doing. So now we're defined by them. We internalize that, that, that uh, malice, that animosity. And so we come back at them. Now, here's the thing. When you come back at them, you just justified in their mind what they did to you. Now, you feel just doing this because you thought what they did was unjust, but that's exactly how they feel. Whatever the reasons were for coming after you and being nasty to you, you just confirmed them, and you just ensured that they'll come back at you again. As long as you stay in this mindset, well, then you'll come back at them. And now we got the little dance that's been going on throughout history, this little spiral of animosity. Tit for tat, quid pro quo, get evenism, retaliate. And now this whole thing, at the center of this whole thing, is the ultimate nasty one, and that is the principalities and powers. Now the powers are playing you. The circle of animosity. So Paul says, don't be overcome with evil by retaliating. Leave all judgment to God, he says in this passage, and instead do it like this. When they come at you with their nasty, I don't know, I don't go like this. I can't even draw stick people. Okay, all right. Uh, they're, They're a little being little demons towards you. When they do that, now, nor, normally, uh, we consider it pretty noble and praiseworthy if a person just doesn't respond. Uh, I'm not going to respond to that. And in Minnesota, that can take the form of responding, but just in a real passive-aggressive way. <laughs> we won't let them know that we're responding, but we'll do it sideways. Uh, we're good at that. But we think it's noble. Oh, you know, just, just walk away. Just don't do it. And that is noble. It's better than this. But see, this isn't what God did for us. He didn't just refrain from judging. He didn't just not give us what we deserved. Um, no, he went overboard in the other way. He went, he, when pushed, he pushed back, but he pushed back with the opposite kind of push. We push on him by rejection. He pushes on us by adopting us as children. Uh, he, he, he fights. It's not a, he's not a passive, just refrainer from judgment thing. No, there's an active component of this. He passionately comes back at us, but he comes back at us with love, like this, see? But self-sacrificial love, cross-like love. There's a cross in the middle of this. He gives his life for us. And so he confronts it here. And this is how we are to respond to evil. When there's nastiness done towards us, we're to respond the way God has responded to us when we were yet nasty. And so we respond through self-sacrificial love, asking, what can we do to bless them? Do the opposite of what they're doing. Look for ways you can serve them, the way God looked for a way to serve us. Uh, And so Paul says, if, if your enemy's hungry, and by the way, when he's talking about enemies, he's not just referring to grouchy people, though it applies to grouchy people, but this is a time when Christians are being persecuted. These are, these are really enemies here, okay? Killer kinds of enemies. But look for how you can serve them. If they're hungry, give them something to eat. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. Because in doing that, two things happen. One, 
You're, you're, you're preserving. Now you're not defined by their nastiness. You're defined by the cross, by what God thinks about you on the cross, which is how we're always to be defined. We're in the kingdom insofar as we are defined by what God did for us on Calvary. And so you're, you're, you're guarding your own heart. Now you're overcoming evil with good in your own heart. You're guarding your own heart. You're not getting sucked into the undertow and buying into this demonic cycle that's been characterizing the world from, from the day of the fall. No, you're, you're now defined by, by Jesus Christ. And you're bringing Christ into this situation. You're kingdomizing the situation. So you overcome evil with good in your own heart, but you also open the possibility of overcoming evil in the other person's heart. Uh, coming at them and giving them the opposite of what you think they deserve, what, that, 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 that's like a pattern interrupt. It stops the flow of this cycle going on. And the contrast between the way they're treating you and the way you're treating them, that contrast exposes the wrongfulness of the way they're treating you. It brings it out to light. And in bringing it out into the open, it allows the person to see this and possibly turn from it. That's why Paul says, you're heaping coals of fire on their head. Uh, you're, you're, you're bringing conviction on them. When you treat someone nasty and they keep on being nice to you, it doesn't feel good because it, it, it makes you look bad. And, and there's the possibility now that this person will repent and maybe even be reconciled with you. So now you're flowing in a different direction here. And now we got, this is a heart here. Uh, they, they get loving to you, so now you, again, are loving to them, and they're loving to you. And now we've got an entirely different kind of spiral going on. And at the center of this is not the principalities and powers. At the center of this is Jesus Christ and the love that he demonstrated on the cross. And now, see, you've turned this into a kingdom situation. You, there's no power in the universe that can do this other than self-sacrificial love. You can't threaten this. You can't, any more than, than threats and laws and rules and, and intimidation and social pressure or religion can change you from the inside out. It can't work. Only love can do that. The love demonstrated on the cross. So also, nothing can reverse this demonic cycle other than self-sacrificial love. And so Paul is saying, go to the opposite extreme. Do the opposite of, of uh, what they expect you to do and what your fallen nature wants to do and what the powers are trying to seduce you into doing. Don't identify the person as a flesh and blood enemy. That's what goes on here. You think you have a flesh and blood enemy. No, the enemy is the one who's trying to get that to happen. So you fight them by refusing to not love this person and by going overboard in the other way, in the other extreme, just like Jesus did for you to redeem you. And you know what? This, feel, this, this is hard to do at first. I, it, it's... You have to swallow your pride. You have to slay your fallen nature. In fact, this is why Paul, at the beginning of this chapter, he says, offer up your bodies as living sacrifices. Uh, you have to sacrifice yourself, your old self, for this. But he says, do that as an act of worship, your reasonable act of worship. When you respond this way, you are worshiping God. Uh, and, and it's your reasonable act of worship because this is the way God treats you. And so we extend that same love to others. Imitate God, live in love, just as Christ loved you and gave his life for you. Now you're worshiping God. And at first it's really hard. But you'll find that as you do this, it feels really good. Uh, it, I, it really exemplifies Jesus' teaching that when you lose your life, you find it. You lose that old retaliating self, uh, you'll find it. And there can be a joy here. When you're living in this tit-for-tat mindset, uh, you know, it's kind of... Donald Trump exhibits it perfectly because he always says, if someone's going to strike me, I'll strike him back harder. Well, there you go, tit for tat. And when you're living in this tit for tat kind of mindset, 
uh, you're always defined by the negativity that's directed towards you. And, and at first, it can feel good to strike back. You know, you got a better zinger. You're going to give it to them. Oh, it feels good. It feels empowering. But it's all deception. It's the deception of the powers. What do you expect? Satan's been a liar from the beginning. So you feel empowered, but it's sucking life out of you. And people who live in this tit-for-tat mindset that they ruminate about wrongs done to them. And that negativity, they're absorbing that negativity and they're being defined by that negativity. And they ruminate on oh, what plan was they're going to do to get even. And it's miserable. It's absolutely miserable. feels empowering in the moment, but it's just miserable over the long haul. But when we instead do the opposite of what we think the people deserve and what they're expecting, it feels you're above that pollution. You're, to be above that undertow, to not be played by the powers, to be empowered to respond differently. And in a shocking way, it can feel really good. In fact, you can have joy in the midst of persecution when you're responding in a Christ-like way to those who are persecuting you. I am blessed to have been able to have a lot of practice on this one. <laughs> Lucky me. Uh, because of some views that some people think are not acceptable or controversial, um, then some things I've espoused, including this message, we might fall in, into that category. But because of that, I, I tend to, I have a target on my back, and it's in the crosshairs of a number of people out there. And so I, you know, it, it ebbs and flows, but there's been times where I've had to uh, really respond to some nasty uh, attacks, sometimes on my theology, usually on my theology, but sometimes even on my character. And people have done some things that were just really nasty because uh, they disagreed with, with my views. And I will confess that I haven't always responded in a Christ-like, beautiful way. <laughs> There's been times where you get caught off guard and, and you forget your identity and you forget, you know, that the kingdom call and, and, and your amygdala gets activated and you identify the person as a flesh and blood enemy. So you use flesh and blood means of, of going back at them and they use words. So you're going to use words. And, and in those times, I've been miserable. But there have been other times, and I'd like to think that they're increasing as I get older, um, where I have stayed mindful and I have, have responded with love and blessing instead of retaliation and trying to defend myself and all that. Uh, and in those times, there is a peace and a joy that is there. There's one time in the late 90s, I delivered this paper at this conference. And it was a paper that critiqued a theological position. Uh, it was a, I think... Very solid critique of this theological position, if I do say so myself. Uh, well, this one guy in the room, and probably a lot of people in this room, held this position. Um, but this one guy at the end of the thing was just livid, just mad. So when the thing was done, three people applauded. And then this guy comes up, and he was, he was just mad, and he starts laying into me. I mean, uh, kind of had a personal feel to it. I mean, he was just... Most of the people were clearing out of the room, but a few people stayed around just to kind of watch this theological dogfight. It could get interesting. Let's see who's going to win. And I initially felt an urge. You know, someone comes at you big. You want to get bigger. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you want to fight back. And I've got an arsenal of, of theological weapons I could use to try to slice him up. You know, we'll take that. <laughs> There's that urge. And it might feel good in the moment. But see, it make me miserable in the long run. But I was able, in this instance, to stay mindful, knowing that my life is in Christ, nothing else matters, and, and, and that I'm called to respond in a different way. So this guy's going off for about a minute. He's just laying into me, and, and I'm, I'm in my heart blessing him, uh, and I'm looking for ways I can serve him. And after about a minute, as he's just getting louder and louder, um, and with arguments, by the way, that I could have easily sliced up, <laughs> but no, I'm not going to... There, there might be a place for that in a later essay, but to hear... Um, I, 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 I refrained from that, and I, I, after about a minute, I just said, 
Can I treat you to dinner? And the person went on for about another three seconds going, well, you did it. and he stops. He goes, what? <laughs> and I said, well, there's this great restaurant right down the street. I had lunch there this afternoon, and, and they have the best vegetarian taco I've ever had. And I'd like to treat you to dinner there, uh, and we can continue this discussion. And the guy did not know what to do. Uh, this often happens when you respond in an opposite way. He, he was like, he, he, he was ruined. It was like I just extinguished the, the, the fire of anger that he had. I took away his mojo for arguing. And, and so he's kind of puzzled, and he finally says, oh, no, I'm, I have another appointment. But he completely lost his desire to attack me. He says, it's not fun to attack if the person's not going to attack back. So he goes, you know, I, I better get going. Uh, you know, thanks for the paper. And they walk. I said, hey, the invitation is still open if you change your mind. Um, and that just, you just bless them. But see, that pattern interrupt, that's the thing that breaks the cycle. Bam! It's like when Jesus says, you know, someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. What? Or a Roman soldier says, hey, carry my, my weapons for one mile. That's what the, the law said that they could do. Roman guards could say, they say to any peasant Jew, carry my stuff for a mile. Well, then say, hey, I'll, I'll go too. <laughs> just shock them. If someone's going to steal your coat, offer them your shirt too. That, that interrupt there just changes everything and opens the door of possibility that this can start happening. And, uh, and it guards your heart. And it's, it's a way of serving, a way of loving your enemies. You're, you're open the possibility of setting them free. And it feels good. When this guy was doing this, it just felt so good to be above that undertow. There could even be sort of, and I, I, this can sound carnal. Maybe I shouldn't say it, but... Oh, okay. <laughs> just say it! You've given a thousand of these before. You should be a little more eloquent than that. Almost a sense of enjoyment. Like, I, I enjoy being able to be objective on this. And, and just to watch this, and then being empowered to respond a different way, there's a joy in that. And, and it, it, almost as kind of entertainment, as the person's baffled, it, it's kind of fun, but you, you, you're trying to do it, you're doing it for yourself, but you're also doing it for them. It's an act of love. This is our one secret weapon. They didn't see it coming. Uh, we didn't see it coming when Christ died on the cross, and uh, those who are against us don't see it coming. Um, and it feels so good to do it. Uh, and this is the hope of the world, folks. <laughs> This is the thing that will change everything. Now, let, let me end with just a couple of quick practical tips about how to do this, all right? Number one is I often say around here, maybe ad nauseum, but it's so important that our identity is anchored in Christ. By that I mean, by that I mean uh, to have your worth and significance and security, your sense of being a fully alive human being, all anchored in what God thinks about you on the cross. Because we all need to do, we all need that in our life. We need to feel important and significant and worthwhile and, and secure in that. But see, if we're not getting it from what God thinks about us on the cross, then we've got to get it from other sources. And if we're living out of that emptiness, the way people treat you will always be important. It's your dignity. You need people to show you some respect. And, and so when they don't do that, you're going to get triggered. You need it too much. And you'll never be able to respond in a Christ-like way. People who get caught up in this demonic cycle, it's because... They're demanding their worth. They're protecting themselves. Oh, yeah, well, I'm, you're saying I'm better than that, and you probably are. But if you're getting your source from the way people treat you, then you're going to have to fight back when they don't treat you the way that you think you're supposed to be treated. Get all your life from Christ. Get your worth from Christ, your identity in Christ. It's the only thing that empowers us to live above that pollution, to not get caught into that tit-for-tat mindset. You know who you are. So if someone calls you a jerk, that's like throwing a little pebble on armor. You know, it, it, it just won't get in because you know your identity. If you're securing your identity, 
People can say what they want to say and do what they want to do and have their opinions about you and, and whatnot. And they can even take your life. But you don't even cling to that because you've got it all in Christ. And you know that having your life taken isn't the end of the world. That's just the beginning of, of the real world. And so you don't need to cling to anything. So you're free to live in love as Christ loved you and gave his life for you. And I, I, I want to say, I think it's appropriate to say right now in, with our climate and this culture, I'm going to speak to the people of color in the room and we're listening through podcasts, we're in America, that when, when folks say to you as being said way too much these days, you know, that some people feel emboldened to say nasty stuff like, you don't belong here, you're not welcome here, know who you are in Christ. Uh, it's time for you to go home, know who you are in Christ. We don't like your kind around here, know who you are in Christ. Uh, your battle is not against them, it's against the powers, the principles and powers that are playing them. And the way to stay clean from that for yourself and the way to help others is to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Know who you are. Know your identity. Get your worth in Christ. Second thing is, remember that love starts in the mind. Like everything else, it starts in the mind. In fact, the mind is the main battlefield. By the time it gets translated to actions, it's too late. This is why Jesus says, it's, it's not enough that you just don't commit adultery. Don't feel so proud about that. Do you lust after people in your heart? And it's not enough that you don't murder people. Uh, it, it, in the kingdom, you got to ask, are, are you murdering people in, in your mind, in your heart, in your imagination? Are, are you slandering them? Are, 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 do you harbor hate in them? Most people are utterly unaware of how much mind pollution they have. The brain goes on autopilot, and they're gossiping about people all the time, saying negative things about people. They're ruminating. About, uh, they're living in this tit-for-tat thing, and, and they're not even aware of it. Because they're not aware of it, they can hear the gospel, and they try to implement it, but you'll never implement it in your life if you're not implemented in, in your brain first. And so I want to encourage us to be detectives of our mind. If you're a disciple, you're being disciplined by Jesus Christ. That's what it is to be a disciple, one who's being disciplined by another. And so be, become, be disciplined in your mind. Wake up to how you think about people and, and start to change that. Purge from your mind everything that's inconsistent with the truth of Christ. And what you know from Christ as every human being has unconditional worth, and your first job as a disciple is to agree with God about that. So agree with God in your brain about that. Because most people are unaware of what goes on in their mind, they think this is just who I am. I've always been like this. And they're in bondage to that. And since what's in their brain has come from a million different sources, what dad did or what mom said or what the boyfriend did, when, whatever, we're defined by those people. If, if your thought is an extension of what they did and said and all that, well then... They're, they're, they're the functional Lord of your life. They're defining you. But see, we have power over our thought. If we didn't have power over our thought, how could the Bible tell us what to think? It tells us, take every thought captive, 2 Corinthians 10.5. It tells us, to, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are pure, whatever things are beautiful, think on those things. Which means if you find yourself thinking things that are untrue and not beautiful, not wholesome, not noble, Purge that. Just set it aside and turn your mind to something that is, is true and beautiful. If you're not thinking Christ-like thoughts about people, even the people who are persecuting you, if, if that's not in your mind, it will never be in your behavior. The best you can do is fake it. Uh, and the faking won't last very long and you won't be good at it anyways. And it's not good to do even if you were good at it. In fact, the better you are at doing that, the sicker you are. So don't do that. It's got to be real. It's got to be genuine. So trans, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Paul says, Romans 12, 2. Third, closely related to this, practice. Practice makes perfect. There's no challenge in life that we can get good at without practicing. And this, folks, is the ultimate challenge. 
to deny that old self and respond to wrongs done to you in a Christ-like way, going to the extreme opposite, demonstrating extravagant love. It is challenging. And so practice it. Now, we practice it whenever we put it into practice in our life. But a fundamental way to practice it that most people don't realize is in prayer. In prayer, bring up in your imagination the situations in which you tend to respond to people in the most unchristlike way. When do you get triggered? Who is that person in your life that just loops you into this demonic merry-go-round? And then run that scenario in your mind. See it in motion, vividly replay it. And ask the Spirit to guide you in this. But when you replay it, now see yourself responding the way you are in Christ. Responding the way Christ would have you. The, responding, the way, responding to this person the way Christ responded to you when you were yet an enemy. And see yourself doing this. And ask the Spirit to be, help you be creative and show you ways that you can uh, respond that will be a pattern interrupt. Things you can do that will... Uh, you know, con contrast with the way the person is treating you. See it. And as you're seeing it, enjoy it. And affirm that that is the true you. That really is the true you. This isn't like the pop psychology, think your way into reality. No, this is already the reality. You just got to think your way into reality. You are this. This is you in Christ. It's your old self that is lying to you. And so practice this in your imagination. Uh, and, and see what the Holy Spirit does with that. There's a lady several years ago who was telling me about, she was in this tit-for-tat with her neighbor. It had been going on for years. Once upon a time they were friends and something terrible happened. And ever since, they've just been nasty, different ways. She got this message about how we are called to bless everybody and collapse judgments and things like that. And she was putting this into practice in prayer. And when they were friends, she, had, she knew that this lady, her favorite food in the world was German chocolate cake. And so there was some kind of dispute that they had. And this lady responded by baking her a, a German chocolate cake and bringing it over to her. And that, that was the pattern interrupt. It just interrupted everything. And started to, revert, to turn this into that. Yeah, I'll be nice to you. And then she responds with a little bit of niceness. And they start working through the issues. And it just changes everything. So practice makes perfect. Make, make it an act of discipleship that you rehearse this stuff in your mind. And finally, folks, speak the truth in love. Remember, love isn't a feeling. It's not this gushy, gushy, you know. No, no, it's not that. It's simply a commitment to do to others what Christ did to us. You ascribe worth to others, unsurpassable worth. And it's certainly not a, a warm, fuzzy feeling all the time. Love sometimes isn't flowery. Love, in fact, sometimes it needs to be very confrontational. Um, sometimes it's not good for you or the person who's against you, or for others involved, it's not good to remain silent about something. You need to speak the truth. But the truth needs to be spoken in love. And that's the key here. Uh, truth without love, oh, th that can just be another weapon. In fact, truth without love can be something demonic. It can, it can be destructive. We need to speak the truth in love. And so Paul says, do everything in love. 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Do everything in love. And so... Folks, I encourage you, if you can't speak the truth in love, then shut up and practice it for however long it takes you until you can do it so that your motivation really is love. You're not retaliating here. You're speaking truth to liberate, to free, to transform, to turn a demonic merry-go-round into a cross-centered merry-go-round. Amen? Speak the truth in love. So I want to end with this. Um, there's a song we sang last week for the first time, and I just loved it. It's it's like the most kingdom song I think we've ever sung. It's us for them. And I want to end by singing this song and, and, and do it as a declaration and as a commitment. This is how we're going to live. Let me just read to you some of the lyrics of this. 
to prime the pump, and then we're going to just declare this. When the lines are drawn, and when you're in or out, and when it's us or them, and we shame the doubt, we declare it is all a lie. This us, them, flesh and blood battle, it's all a lie. All we ever really need is love. There's no need to shed more blood, not if you're having a kingdom mindset. We rather look upon the cross. We look upon the cross, and there we see the face of Christ. We see the mercy in his eyes. Remember how God treated you while you were yet an enemy. We see the mercy in his eyes. And when, when, when we manifest that love, every valley shall be lifted high. And now our enemies are blessed because we're no longer retaliating against them. We rather bless them the way God blessed us. So now the heavy laden rest because it's such a burden to live in that tit-for-tat world. When you start living in this grace world, man, the burdens are lifted. It's just beautiful. For his judgment is love. He pushed back, but he pushed back with cross-like love. His judgment is love. So that's our judgment towards others. See, a kingdom has come to us. A war that's fought with love. That's the war he fights, so that's the only war we're going to fight. Only, our only war is love. And so we say, we will not fight their wars, those flesh and blood wars. We will not fall in line, because if it's us or them, it's going to be us for them, us for them. They may think we're an enemy, but they're not going to be our enemy. They may think that it's an us, uh, us versus them, but we will not buy into that. We will respond the opposite way, and that is our weapon. We, either, we, we reject the either or. They can't define us anymore. Who's going to define you? The anger that's directed towards you or the love of God that was revealed on the cross? They're not going to define us anymore because if it's us or them, it's us for them. It's us for them. Would you stand and let's declare it with passion and conviction because it is the truth. Let's go. All right. Yes. What a declaration. What a declaration. That's pure truth. That's pure truth, man. Praise God. All right. All uh, right. Will the prayer teams come up here, and if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever that could use prayer, maybe it's about this issue, maybe about something totally different, but they would love to minister to you. And if you're here this morning and you're not a surrendered follower of Jesus, but there's something tugging at your heart, come on up here. Talk to these people. They'd love to get you started on that walk. Folks, as we leave here, can we do it with that commitment? Think of right now about a person that, that you probably have one in your life. So maybe you've been playing the demonic merry-go-round game, but it's time to stop. Ask the Spirit to give you a pattern interrupt. Imagine that. Rehearse that. And then respond to them the way Christ has responded to you. Going to the opposite extreme, because it's the extravagance of his love that breaks the chains, that changes the situation, that brings the kingdoms, that sets the captives free. Let's go out with a commitment to shed that light, to shed that love. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that, say amen. Amen. amen.